Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend of Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend of Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to pray and how to save my soul. He taught me how to praise my God and still play rock and roll. The music may sound different, but the message is the same. It's just an instrument to praise His name. Hello and welcome to Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to engage in meaningless debates with uh, Christians who apparently don't know their own source material. To previous listeners of the show, uh, the Evidence for Faith crew needs no introduction, but I'm going to give it anyway. Keith Kendricks and Kirk Hastings have come on the show to debate with us the uh, briefly the Kalam cosmological argument and uh, more extensively the, quote, evidence for Christianity. So without further ado, let's get on to the debate. Uh, we will present it completely unedited, partially because I'm uh, very lazy, and uh, partially so you guys can suffer uh, exactly as much as we did. I cut out the first five minutes because we essentially just exchanged hellos, talked about some ground rules, and I believe uh, Keith can pick it up from there. Keith? Let's make sure we do got the, the right topic things, though. Um, we wanted to do a little bit on the Kalam argument. Um, obviously, we could spend hours just talking on that, but hopefully just a, a few minutes, maybe no more than 15 minutes on that. What do you think? Sure. And then, well, that was interesting. I thought our fans didn't want to hear about that. Didn't uh, they want to drop that? But since when do we care about what our fans want to <laughs> That's usually a good point. It's uh, They can take yeah, it and eat it. They wanted to hear Dr. Mike instead of me anyway. That's right. They did. <laughs> Here. <laughs> so a little bit on Kalam and then uh, we'll jump right into the main topic which is given the existence of God why Christianity what's your evidence for Christianity okay alright well uh, let's go ahead and start then um, I think it would be best if you just went ahead and because I think some of our listeners didn't understand the difference between the regular cosmological argument and the Kalam cosmological argument so the yeah, regular... It was actually something that there was quite a bit of uh, discussion on the board, and they kept howling at us that we were answering it incorrectly. So why don't we set the oh. two straight from the get-go? Right. The cosmological argument basically says uh, everything uh, has a cause, the universe has a cause, therefore, you know, the universe or God had to cause it or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but... Right. Um, I mean, that's basically it. It's Aristotle's uh, prime mover argument. You can't right. have an infinite regress. You go back to a first cause. You must have a first cause. That first cause was God. Yep. That's so right. how does the Kalam cosmological argument differ from the regular cosmological argument? Well, it's basically a kind of a modernized version of the older arguments. And its first premise is whatever begins to exist has a cause. Second premise is that the universe began to exist, and the third premise is therefore, or the conclusion is that therefore, the universe has a cause. So that's the that's what we talked about in our last discussion, and you had mentioned a couple of answers, what you thought were refutations. I think you said that this was the the fallacy of composition, and. I believe you mentioned that there, you have to draw a distinction between the universe itself and the things in the universe. Right. So, and, you know, that was the end of the show, so we didn't get a chance to respond to that, but... Um, well, you know, we, were, we were in the middle of the show, but Leighton kept uh, sticking his nose in and uh, taking oh. <laughs> us out from the Kalam cosmological argument. I wanted to keep dragging you back, but... Well, that's, that's because, fair. once again, philosophy is one big circle jerk, and I would rather step <laughs> away from that, so... <laughs> we love philosophy. Right. <laughs> well, it's because you have to hide somewhere when science takes away all other platforms. So, so go take a nap, Leighton. The men, oh, I, the men are going to talk now. I'm actually muting and eating a bagel while you guys talk there. about this subject, so don't be surprised <laughs> if I'm quiet. 
All right, so two options are um, the fallacy of composition. Actually, both of those kind of fall under the fallacy of composition. Uh, the universe is a, is a set more than an actual thing itself, and you could argue that um, it's conflating uh, an item or a thing with a set of things. And the fallacy of composition itself says that, you know, the stuff that makes up the universe, uh, you can describe those things, but the descriptions of those things don't have to apply to the entire universe. Right. So an example of a fallacy of composition would be all the tiles on the floor are white, therefore the floor is white. Now at first that sounds, what? what's wrong with that? It's, of course it's true. But the problem is that it doesn't always work, so you can't trust it. For instance, if, if I say all of the parts of an elephant are light in weight, therefore the elephant is light in weight. That's an obvious um, fallacy. Right. But the problem is that that's not the argument that we're making. We're not saying that because the parts of the universe need or began to exist, therefore the universe began to exist, then that would be a fallacy of composition. We're saying that something can't come from nothing that whatever begins to exist has a cause. So it's not a fallacy of composition because we are not arguing by composition. Except period. God, of course. God doesn't need creation. But uh, it's still, it's still not a fallacy of, our, of composition. That it, what, what you have are two things. You're carving out two categories. Things that begin to exist and things that do not begin to exist. Correct? Uh, yes. So... Uh, in your things uh, that, that begin to exist, you have everything in the universe, and also the universe itself, right? I mean, that's the, that's the jump. That's the logical jump. Correct. Uh, which, again, it's, it's a, that, that argument well, except is a fallacy that you're, you're, drawing, you're drawing a false um, dichotomy. When you say everything that exists, meaning every physical thing, and then you say the universe as if the universe is something separate from everything that exists, but the universe is act actually a descriptor describing what everything that exists. It's just, if I say the universe, what I'm saying is everything that exists. Right, that, or that's rather, a, every physical thing that exists. Right, that's my argument. That's, uh, it's yeah, like this, the, the set of odd numbers, right, is evenly spaced uh, from each of its neighbors by two. And the uh, set of odd numbers then uh, therefore, would be uh, spaced by uh, every other set of numbers by two. I mean, it doesn't make sense. You, you can't say the set of odd numbers is spaced from the set of irrational numbers by two. You, you're making a leap there that doesn't, A, it's not warranted, and B, it doesn't make sense. The, if the universe is just a descriptor of, of things inside of it... The word the universe, the word the universe is a descriptive word by which we mean all the physical things right, it's that a set. exist. That... It's a set containing right. all of the things that exist. Right. So just because all of the things uh, exist inside of the universe, that, that all of them had begun to exist, doesn't mean the universe itself began to exist. That's my problem with the argument. That's one problem with the argument. Um, for example, all the universe, uh, things that exist inside the universe exist within time. Well, time began when the universe began. There is no, you don't need a cause for the universe, because cause is temporal. It's located in time. How can you have an antecedent cause before time existed? Well, you have to have a cause for every... Everything inside the universe, but not the universe itself. But how does that fit in with God? Why don't we talk stupid talk right now? How is it God is excluded from the idea that everything must have a cause? Well, there's because... a there's a second there, there's a second counter argument to it, uh, which Leighton is is um, alluding to, and I, I mentioned a little bit earlier. You're carving up two sets: things that that uh, begin to exist, which includes, uh, according to the argument, the universe and everything inside of it, and things that do not begin to exist, which includes what. God. Uh, anything that is self-existent. So, for Essentially instance... Essentially God. What else? God would be one thing. Numbers. Many philosophers believe that numbers are self-existent. Plato. Um, but numbers are abstract concepts. Outside of a mind, you, you don't have any numbers. 
all you have are items. I mean, the number right. two. Right, much the same as color. Outside of our receptors <laughs> and our minds and, being created to see this color, color does not exist. Right. So numbers is an abstract concept require minds. Numbers begin to exist when minds uh, approach, approach a capacity to actually understand abstract thought. So you can't say that numbers always existed unless you accept some sort of yeah. Neoplatonism where you have uh, ideal forms always existing. No, actually, all you have to do is do an uh, uh, any conceivable world thought experiment, which, you know, in which case, can you think of a conceivable world in which numbers do not exist? Yeah. And I would argue that... With no humans. No humans. Humans are uh, responsible so, right. for the concept of numbers. It right, doesn't so exist outside of human beings. All right. So let's, let's, let's imagine a world then that has um, a solar system in it. Uh, with nine planets, and there are no humans there. So there yep. are no humans in this world. Correct. Are you telling me that in this world there are no numbers? Absolutely. Okay. Next, well, are you going to say that the alphabet is something that's always been in existence? We just kind of stumbled across it. Because <laughs> it's letters. the same general concept. <laughs> letters as well. I mean, in that, in that scenario, you have uh, a number of planets. You've got planets, right? But no one to say that there are nine planets. You just have planets rotating around each other. You would yeah, have to have a you would have to have a human driving by and counting them one two three four five six seven eight nine aha nine planets. Other than that, outside of a mind that can grasp an abstract number a concept like numbers, you have no concept. Well, Without could minds, we you got no numbers. He, could we assume that even in this universe where no humans exist, if God existed, he would still be able to count nine planets? Absolutely, but um, my, my what I'm getting at is that you have you have a set whose entire, even theoretical uh, uh, components is one, right? In that case, that's a definition of special pleading. In that case, the, the, your argument boils down to everything except God has a cause. The universe is not God, therefore the universe has a cause, which is logical, but not too useful. And once you, in, you move beyond to the actual point of the argument, which is to prove God exists, you now become circular under that. So you need something other than God to avoid the charge of special pleading in that. Well, that's None. why they have numbers. I'm just well, waiting numbers, for more in that list. Yeah, you got to have a mind to have numbers. And if you, you, you say that well, God that, exists and that gives you your mind, well, you're back to just God. Anything else? Um, no, I, th I still think that it, you know, the argument is still uh, valid. It's not special pleading. It's no different than when atheists used to say that the universe existed forever. Uh, you know, that's not special pleading, um, and neither is saying that God existed forever and has no beginning. So, well, sure, well, let's start with this. What else the, is in that category with God and numbers? Because right now, uh, numbers is iffy at best because you need a mind and an intellect to actually create numbers, to create alphabets, things like that. So what else is in that category with God to make it so it's not a special pleading? Well, a lot of, a lot of philosophers would say any kind of an abstract thing like properties. Um, for instance, um, uh, love um, could still exist um, because love is a property and that doesn't need to have people. Um, just like numbers, you can have numbers even though there's nothing Wait, 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 wait. Now you're going to argue that animals have souls and that within Christianity is something that is argued back and forth. Well, so, hang on a second. In your, in your scenario where you have nine planets and no humans, are you telling me that the rocks are loving each other? The, the, the clouds are loving each other? The... the uh, uh, planet Jupiter loves Pluto. I mean, how does love exist outside of human beings? How does any abstract concept, which requires a mind in order to grasp, create, discover, exist outside of human beings? Well, if there's no mind, then I would agree that um, mental concepts... Well, okay, here, here's another thing that would exist. Premises. Premises would exist. Who is going to give your premises? It, it doesn't now, matter. This is a bit of circular them. reasoning. Premises. You're basically saying we premises. have minds, therefore minds exist, and therefore love always exists. It's kind of premises. circular reasoning. You have to break that. Not, not at all. Premises would exist 
even if no one existed, even if God didn't exist, because the premise God doesn't exist would still exist. So who is who is, who is giving who is that premise? I premise. mean, unless unless that premise is orbiting the planet, <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Is it about. in a fortune cookie flying around the sun that someone's <laughs> going to run into? I, I mean, what is the premise? Trying to point to as far as the numbers <laughs> when we're talking about this theoretical universe with nine planets and no humans, right? The number right. nine what if, what still exists. The premise: I, there are nine right. planets even still no exist. Even if there's no I, one count nine planets, I argue that there is not an abstract concept. There, there are just planets. Well, there is no one this. to say nine the planets. There's not a nine that's floating around in space. There, no, because it's abstract. That doesn't mean it Correct. doesn't exist. The abstract, abstract is is necessarily. Exists is necessarily limited within the mind or else who is giving the abstract thought how is that existing in what sense is that abstract concept existing if a mind isn't it, it abstracting it by its own nature all right so it's a it's a naked assertion basically what you guys are doing it, a, it, the no, fact that you obvious, have it's something that is obviously self-existent is clearly not obvious well, wait 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 something obvious self-existent all right the color blue does it exist in nature? Yes, it does. No, it does okay. not. It doesn't. The reason why is your eyes are specially tuned in order to receive the frequency of light that is blue. The what about those yeah. who are colorblind? The does frequency of light. They the simply don't recognize that they exist, just as no. you don't recognize that there are self-existing concepts like no. premises, like God, like numbers. No, the frequency it like we're of into the same argument here as um, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one here to hear it, does it make a sound? <laughs> the frequency of yes. light exists. Blue does not. Blue is a sensation that is created by your occipital lobe, given the frequency of light and jiggling of your neurons. Blue hey, Charlie, does not exist in nature. Them, explain to them that disease where someone hits a certain sound and suddenly it's they see synesthesia. Blue where people have some crossed wires where they uh, process uh, sounds too close to their visual cortex and they get blue. So if someone hits a G, they see blue. Now that blue does not exist out in nature. It's not a response to the frequency of light. The frequency of light exists, the sensation of blue does not. That exists within our head. So that if you're telling me, is. If you're that, telling is, me that, that scenario of nine planets that uh, blue exists, I'm telling you, you're absolutely wrong. But if, if everyone sees the same color blue... Then that you have intersubjectivity. You do not have objectivity. You have an agreement. Why are we all we seeing the same color then? You, how do you know you're seeing the same color? <laughs> you have no idea that your blue is the same as my blue. And I'll guarantee you... I mean, we're getting questions you. here that, that are circular that we can't answer. I'll guarantee you that for some shades of red and green, if you're not colorblind, you're seeing different colors than I am. Guarantee because okay. I am you red, green, You guys should colorblind. really look okay. this up right. because Charlie's absolutely right. The frequency of light exists. However, the perception right. capabilities are within the individual. That's the difference. Your, your concept of, of nine, I mean, if someone were to fly in a rocket and count the planets nine, sure, that, that exists. Outside of someone flying in a rocket, I would argue absolutely not. The number nine does not exist. You have multiple planets that are just revolving around unnoticed by anyone, with no abstract concepts whatsoever, unless you're arguing that the yeah. rocks uh, have minds that can abstractly uh, come up with nine. Would the premise that there are no numbers, would that exist in any possible world? No, because not oh, unless... Oh, so it wouldn't, really. In any possible unless, world, it would not exist that there are no numbers? So not in fact, unless there are numbers... Not unless someone is there to make the premise. If someone's there to make the premise, so, then that premise then exists in that guy's head. I, I can't believe you're arguing that there's a premise that just flo that's floating around in nature that just no, existing. It's you, it's you who are confusing physicalism with abstract. I'm not saying that it's floating around. I'm saying that it actually exists. <laughs> Where does it exist? How do you measure a premise? Where? How do you oh, physically measure a premise? Where does it exist? Where? Where does that premise exist? exist? Or the five planets? When you exist, say or where, many there are. 
when you say where, you're making yes. a mistake of a physical presence of something that's abstract. I it see. doesn't so, have locality. So it doesn't exist in any location. It doesn't exist in any time. It doesn't exist in any mind. So Correct. on what definition of existing does it actually exist? We're talking about those things that exist outside the universe. <laughs> Oh, so, I thought so we were talking inside the universe. Feeding, so basically, God is on here the here. I thought the in your scenario, have been forever too. Here, I thought in your scenario, we're that's talking about God inside the universe, and now you're talking about outside the universe. It's amazing to me. All right, um, I think we're, we've hit Kalam. All possible things that exist, and but you have, by definition, excluded anything outside the universe. I do okay. not. Uh, okay. Okay. Then exactly. How does it exist outside the universe? How? That's what I thought. Moving well, on to Kalam, uh, away from Kalam. Let's get into It exists your... self-existently. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but isn't that a special Forget case it. Completely? Forget no, it, Leighton. It's not. Forget it. It's all not. Right, right, Leighton, we're, we're done. We're not going to get it's anywhere on this. Let's just... that are self-existent. Once you get to the point it of arguing... by necessity. <laughs> Arguing by defining things into existence, we're done. Right, we're done. Right. So, All what right. are we going to move what into next, like Charlie? We're moving on to, given the existence of a god, uh, uh, what evidence do you have for Christianity? <laughs> oh, why, why, why Christianity? Follow that religion rather what is it than that make Christianity so special. Rather than say Zeus or Hinduism or Buddhism or Mormonism, why, or why, why Mormon. even your particular brand uh, of Christianity uh, well, as opposed to any other brand of Christianity? I think the the best argument is the character of Jesus himself. That he's the best reason for believing in the truth of Christianity. His moral character his humility, his tolerance. Um, for example, the amazing statement that he made on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, here's, a, here's a quote from... How, how, do you know, how do you know he made that statement on the cross? Remember, that's only attested in one gospel out of the four. Um, because... But that doesn't mean he didn't say it, because how do you know, wrote it down. Well, it's, it's not multiply attested, so... How do you know that that gospel is right and the other three are wrong? <laughs> I don't think the other three are wrong. I think all four of them are right. Uh, it's a raw. If they didn't write it down, it's at least uh, they're incorrect by omission. So if you're saying that one's right and three are wrong, at least by omission, then uh, you've actually taken a step backwards. You're, you're saying three of them are wrong and only one of them are right. Well, come on now, Chuck. I, I'm sure you can see how silly that argument is. There, there's no such thing as wrong by omission. Um, if I didn't tell you Excuse what my me? age was... What about a lie by omission? What happens if you have done something, somebody asks you a question, you tell them only part of it? Is that lie not a, a, a wrong act by omission? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with you. Of course not. I'd agree with you, Keith, if we weren't talking about an omnipotent, uh, omniscient, omnipresent God uh, who, remember, you guys have said in your podcast that these are God-breathed scriptures. So why does an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent uh, God omit things in three out of the four Gospels? But, but Such if again, all four Gospels were exactly the same, in other words, if they reported everything that Jesus said and did, there would be no reason to have four of them. One would be sufficient. All right, so you four guys often say... Four different people, they give us four different viewpoints on what happened. Except it's, it's one some, God who's inspiring them all, right? Other details. So, uh, for wait, example... Wait, wait, wait. Before we continue on here, uh, what is your belief in the Bible? Is it inerrant? I think it's infallible. Yes, I believe that too. Completely infallible. So, on the record, you guys believe that this is the Word of God now and forever. No errors in the Bible. No errors whatsoever. It should be a simple question. You guys have believed <laughs> this in your, your entire life. Oh, they've they just hang up? Gone, they've gone offline. What the? What heck? happened? We didn't even curse. <laughs> Should I try to add them again? Uh, let's try resetting the call and uh, adding them. Oh, is he back? Yes, we hear. 
Yeah, what, what happened? happened? Yeah, somebody must have pushed a button or something because you guys kind of disappeared. We just no, we uh, we a bottle of water just fell over and drowned the computer for a minute. Oh well, that's that's not good, and no, I should not work on electronics. We're liable to be electrocuted here at any minute, so if you hear a zap, that's what it is. You guys want to take a, right. a minute Trust to clean me. that up? I've I've <laughs> soaked up enough electricity where you'll survive. Uh, yeah, do you guys need a minute to clean? <laughs> no, no, I think we're okay. All right. Well, we're, um, yeah, but we're all right. <laughs> all right. So we were asking you if that you believe the Bible has no errors in it whatsoever, no, no. contradictions. No, I, yeah, I believe there are no contradictions. I believe it's infallible. I believe that it that it will not fail us if we trust it for um, for spiritual uh, guidance. There may be some minor scribal uh, errors in it that don't affect any of the doctrines in it, but other than that, we believe that it's accurate in what it says, in the way it says it. I've heard you guys make that claim before. There are no scribal errors that affect any major doctrines. That's right. an interesting claim because it assumes that you guys have the original manuscripts. No. Otherwise, no. Otherwise, how would you know? So you guys are saying that God has basically preserved this with as minor uh, errors in it as possible. It's it's infallible. It's inerrant. Correct. God has preserved this. No, I believe that it is infallible. Um, I. Only in the original manuscripts. Which so we don't, don't have. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. So you guys are arguing that For the instance, original manuscripts that we do not have are the infallible part. However, yeah. the scriptures that we do have, which you follow, are possible to have problems in it. Did you hear that sound, Leighton? That's the sound That's of goalposts moving. Not That's at all. Correct. That's correct. That's course. been the position of Christianity for 2,000 years. You don't have the original manuscripts. That's okay. a worthless claim. How are you sure that but this is not the not. original manuscript? How, do, how are you sure? If you understand the methods, if, if you understand the methods by which these ancient peoples copied these manuscripts, uh, enlighten they us. Consider the copies Please, as accurate us. as the originals, because they made sure by how do, you, how do you know that a number of methods that I could spend an hour describing. Okay. Please, make sure that their copies were exactly accurate numbers. to the ones they're copying from. All right. How do you know that the uh, early scribes did that in the, because say, 60s, 70s, 80s? In the 60s, 70s, and 80s? The first, uh, in the first century? You can have records of that. We Produce have historians them. and archaeologists that have studied how they how they did this and how they preserved these documents, and they know right how they from did. the right from the sixties uh, and seventies, huh? Right from the beginning. For instance, just to give you one basic example, when they copied a, a manuscript such as the Book of Luke, they would count all of the letters in the entire book from front to back, from back to front. They would figure out which letter is exactly in the middle of the book. Who and would do this? With other different ways, and if everything didn't match, they would throw that copy out and start over again. Who would do this? One of the ways that they used to make right. sure that the copies. First off, were who would do this, and where are you getting your information? It wouldn't happen to be the inerrantist associates for Bible research, would it? No, I never heard of them. Oh, oh really? Who's doing this? Uh, that's what I want to know. In, yeah. in early Christianity, who are the people that most flocked to the church? Early on, according to Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, who are the guys who who flocked Even to the church Josephus early on? Even Josephus kind of hinted towards the type of people. So, who exactly was it that flocked to the church in early Christianity? Uh, the Jews. No, Jews were uh, not very popular. Uh, they knew their Torah and they had uh, counter arguments at the ready. As a matter of fact, they they issued an edict to kick out the Messianists, the Christians, from their own uh, uh, synagogues in about the year 85 because they're right. so sick of these guys. So the, the the Gentiles in Christianity was vastly more popular than the Jews. It, that's um, true. They, came, but they which, came later with the ministry of Paul. Right. So, which, so uh, was it the elites? Do you have uh, hundreds of intellectuals and scribes and attorneys and rich people and educated people, or do you have, as uh, Celsus, the pagan, charges and Origen agrees, the 
uh, lower class, the yeah, poor. You had, the, you had a mixture. You had a boat, many of probably. them were the common people. Absolutely, yeah. vast there, majority of the common in the people. Book of Acts in the New Testament that there were thousands of people that were converted in a single day, and it, it's they were just masses of people. It doesn't. Right. So and I mean, outside of the Bible, where do you route. run across information stating that thousands of people were baptized in that day? Right now, all you have is one piece of paper telling you one thing. All right, so, Where's so the we have sources? thousands, we have thousands of uh, existing papyrus manuscripts in Greek, 5,000, <laughs> about 5,500. We have okay. numerous, um, thousands actually of translations. The New Testament was translated early right. into multiple and then what languages. Are the, what are the earliest manuscript that you have? What's the earliest manuscript that you have? Probably about 45 AD. No, not no, even close. Not even close. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> Try four hundred. Oh come no. on! I don't know <laughs> oh, what yeah. you're using. You're but talking Codex Sinaiticus or uh, Codex Vaticanus. These are the oldest complete manuscripts you have. Oh, now the yeah. oldest manuscript that you have, manuscript fragment. What's a complete manuscript? The oldest complete manuscript that you have of say Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You guys know that? Uh, probably about 175, somewhere around there. I think you're being a little generous. It's probably around 300. Now, the oldest manuscript fragment that we have, 125. That's a, maybe a verse or two of John. Now, do you guys realize the contradiction yes, you just right. threw out there? Right. You just threw out that the earliest Bible you guys have was around 40, 50 A.D., and then right there where he asked where the earliest gospel, the earliest manuscript, you threw out 175 A.D., it seems to me you I don't really have the Earl answers. Complete I think there are I think fragments what, that go back farther than that. Right. I think what Kirk was, yeah, the earliest fragment you have is 125. Uh, nothing earlier than 125. No, actually, I no. think the earliest fragments go back to about 45 A.D. And I think that you're wrong. What's your proof of that? Once uh, again, where are you getting your Yeah, I think it's fragment P52 is that one verse, is like a credit card size uh, verse of... Uh, John, it has like a verse or two of John, and that's according to Bart Ehrman, who has a PhD in uh, New Testament studies. So I think a, a manuscript fragment, even a fragment from 45, um, which is earlier than I think the vast majority of scholars even date our earliest uh, writing of Paul, which would be in the yeah. early Yeah, 50s. that's Christianity's holy grail right there, is a um, fragment that can come from that time. Yeah, if you got one at for, uh, for AD 45, I'd be very impressed. I mean, you may be talking about the first writings of Paul is where the earliest dating, they put that, I think, to the early 50s, maybe late 40s, but we don't have any early, we don't have any original manuscripts of Paul, just like we don't have any original manuscripts of anything else. Unless you, you're you're shocking me and, and, and uh, uh, announcing to the world you have a manuscript from 45 AD. No, I don't I don't think we do. I think uh, if I remember correctly I'm you know didn't think we were going to go down this road so I didn't don't have any of my notes but um if I just memory serves me right I think we have three um fragments that are possibly to probably first century and we have about 13 that are most almost certainly um, second second century. I'd so, love to see any fragment you have from the first century. Um, so yeah, I, I the, know my, that we do. Uh, my point is that the people who are, are by and large converting Christianity in its early stages are the poor, the uneducated. Rarely will you get someone who uh, can even afford a scribe. Papyrus is very expensive uh, and you don't get really good manuscripts and really good copying methods until Christianity spreads to Alexandria, where they have professional scribes. So you don't know for the first hundred years what the copying methods were. It could have been some guy down the street who happened to be barely literate copying this stuff. And those were the earliest manuscripts. Now you're making copies from that. So we don't have any real confidence that there are a professional cadre of scribes from the earliest portion, which is the most important portion of Christianity as far as manuscripts are concerned that are going through this rigorous uh, method that you're discussing. Uh, there's no evidence well, here's, for that. Here's a quote that I can read you from my book if I could do that uh, by Please. a William F. Albright who was a is a uh, biblical archaeologist 
Great. He says, thanks to the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries, the New Testament proves to be, in fact, what it was formerly believed to be. The teaching of Christ and his immediate followers between circa 25 and circa 80 A.D. We can already say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about 80 A.D., the earliest copies that we have. And we have thousands of those copies. You can't compare. That's, a, that's an illegitimate comparison. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I've heard you guys in your podcast say that here, you know, the Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls from 200 uh, B.C. up to uh, where we, you know, have the next one. I think the Masoretic text is the next one in the 1100s. You know, there's, right. very, there's very little change between these two. But right. keep in mind, these are professional Hebrew scholars that are and priests. Now that, if you're going to say that, yes, the copying method is rigorous for, for Hebrews. Absolutely. And not uh, only that, if if you but don't unless, want to be interceding, Charlie. Hang on a second. Hang like, on a second. All right, but unless you have <laughs> Levite priests copying your Christian documents, let, let Leighton talk. Let Leighton talk. <laughs> all right, Leighton, go yeah. ahead. Well, I would just like to point out that you just quoted us a quote from William Foxwell Albright. Is that correct? That's correct. You realize this man died in 1971, which means there has been, oh, I don't know, 40 years more of archaeology there, and I find it very difficult to understand what he would do. Now, now you guys, in your podcast, you've spent quite a bit of time on historicity. Now, do you guys recall doing uh, archaeology in the Exodus, uh, Joseph in Egypt? Uh, yes, Joseph in Egypt, yes, absolutely. Oh, good, good. Uh, well, uh, who did you get your information from? From an, a couple of archaeologists during a couple of conferences um, at the uh, um, uh, at a conference ar where there were some archaeologists. <laughs> Was there one by the name of Bryant Wood there? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, he should be, because that's who you based your information off of, and both him and the second archaeologist are both part of the Inerrantist Associates for Biblical Research, which is why I found it so interesting that you had never even heard of this society when you are quoting, in the two archaeological shows that you do, you are quoting from the Associates for Biblical Research. In fact, I went and looked up both articles on that one website. So doesn't mm -hmm. it say something to you that you aren't even looking into who is giving you this information? Give me the name of that association again. The Inerrantist Associates for Biblical Research. You can look up Bryant Wood in there. And, Bryant uh, Wood? Bryant Wood. Yes, okay. he was the uh, the one where you got quite a bit of your information on, and uh, it was it's very interesting that you don't even remember who he is or what association he was from. Um, okay. Well, I'll well, look see, Do you guys yeah. want to talk about the the Exodus in the terms of uh, inerrantist? Uh... Well, I thought we were talking about Christianity. So I'd like to talk about the reliability of the Gospels. Um, one of the ways that we know that it is reliable is well, before we move into that, how about we finish our conversation with here? Because while he's looking up the Inheritance Associates for Biblical Research, I did a little research into Bryant Wood myself. And okay. uh, very interestingly... Uh, oh, probably about 50 years ago, he tried to date the destruction of Jericho City 4 to the proper time in the Bible. And in fact, several of them uh, basically stated, you know what, you're completely wrong, but he clung to it, and this was his response. He had produced evidence to back his argument, and that any counterclaim should also be backed by fresh evidence. And the reason I bring this up, because in 1995, they discovered fresh evidence, charred cereal grains, and through radiocarbon dating, they proved that Wood was completely incorrect. However, this is his statement. The discrepancy is part of the ongoing dispute between Egyptologists and radiocarbon experts. Don't you see a problem here? You have a man who, alone against all of archaeology, stands by his claims even when proof is against him. So what does that say about the sources that you guys use? What were, what were the dates of the carbon dating? Uh, the radiocarbon dating, uh, hold on, let me pull that up. Uh, 
Let's see. Wood uh, attempted to redate the destruction of Jericho City 4 from the end of Bronze Age, so 1550 B.C. to 1400 B.C., late Bronze. He was basically trying to fit it in to what the Bible said. Now, before that, Kathleen Kenyon had the dating of the city around 1550 B.C., which puts it much later than what the Bible would like. And interestingly enough, the radiocarbon dating dated it to Kathleen Kenyon's dating, and she received her dating through actual archaeological digging and mapping out the pottery sherds. Much earlier, you mean? For 15, much, much 15. earlier. She did this back in the yeah. 1950s. And no, no, uh, I meant, Wood tried to claim... 1550 B.C. would be er, uh, earlier, not, not later. So that so the walls were already she would have said the walls were already walls were already destroyed. Excuse me for misquoting. Yes, you are correct. Okay. All right. Just trying to understand there. But basically, what you have is you have Kathleen Kenyon, who dated the city before they found fresh evidence in 1995, and that fresh evidence pointed back to Kathleen Kenyon. And yet, despite that, you have a man who you guys have based all of your research on the Exodus on, Bryant Wood. Well, and my, my, guess is, my guess is that that's probably, you're talking about a difference of 100 years going back 3,000 years. 150 years, yes. So, so my guess is that's well within the uh, margin of error oh. of the, the test. That's that's my guess, but I, I'd be happy to you know look that up. I, I'm... I will well, how much that. research beyond that conference where you went down and you sat in that room, how much research beyond that into the Exodus and into the archaeological claims did you do? Uh, I read a really good book by a couple of um, uh, Jewish archaeologists who are atheists. Um, uh, I think it's called The Bible Unearthed. Oh, good. Uh -huh. uh, in that book, did they claim that Hatshepsut was the one who pulled Moses out of the Nile? No, not at all. In fact, what's interesting is that they um, completely um, did a card-stacking propaganda uh, move where they did not mention any archaeologists that disagreed with them at all. So um, Very interesting. So, very so are, you, are you claiming that Wood is being oppressed by all of these other archaeologists? Not at all. Well, that's very interesting because Wood's claim, even on the Exodus goes completely against all archaeological standing right now. Um, well, I wouldn't say all. Um, I, I'm well, sure those outside of uh, such foundations as the inerrantist associates for biblical research, outside of that circle, yes, I would say all are pretty much stand against him. Okay, and well, I should know because I went to three different universities to match what Bryant Wood was saying against the or, or excuse me, the archaeological departments there. In fact, we even have uh, a very close friend who works in the Egyptology department up at the U of U, and I went and sat down and went over every little bit of Bryant Wood. And in every instance of me going to these university professors, they laughed and mocked what he was putting down there. So I would say yes, all of archaeology beyond those who are inerrantists proving biblical research disagree with both Wood and the other archaeologist, which we can go into if you would like, because I've done some background research on him as well. Uh, let's let's get back to the topic at hand. I think we're at the halfway there point now. Um, let's go into you were going to say something about the All reliability time flies of the you're having fun, doesn't it? Oh, oh yeah. Um, one of the one of the evidences that we have accurate um, scriptures is the unbroken chain of uh, disciples. Um, if when you move backwards from about one about AD one seventy five, when the gospels are known um, and acknowledged to be in a form that's essentially like our own, there aren't any gaps between even though the transmission of the gospel spread into different parts of the world, we can create separate lines of analysis where you move back from uh, teacher to pupil, teacher to pupil. Do you, do you realize that the um, Gnostics have uh, also 
lines of apostolic succession uh, to, to I mean this is this is a, a common trick in the first and second century to give yourself credibility it's why people wrote gospels and named them the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Peter now speaking um, of which who exactly are you guys claiming wrote uh, Mark Luke and all of that are you claiming that those are the actual disciples of Christ yes yes and Tatian um, followed from Justin Martyr. Uh, Irenaeus followed his teacher, Polycarp. Um, Ignatius of Antioch was an early uh, church father, and all these people wrote about the Gospels. Um, like Tatian, who was born in 110, he wrote the first harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron, so around 150 to 160. And he used only the four Gospels, no others. Tatian's teacher was Justin Martyr, who was born about 100. Um, and he, when he writes, he uses quotations from what he calls the memoirs of the apostles. At that time, they weren't even called Gospels, which is one of the reasons we know that the Gnostic Gospels are from the second century, because they called themselves Gospels. We don't know if they called themselves Gospels. Yes, they did. It's right in. We don't even... Did you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? We don't even know. Actually, I have. Gospel of Thomas. Uh, right, which is from... They called it a, the which are, secret... Which are, yes, our manuscript is from when? That manuscript is from what century? Second century. The Gospel of Thomas. The second, the second century is when they the date the book to be written. The actual, the actual manuscript, manuscript is from the 4th century. century. You're talking about the Nag Hammadi manuscript. Correct. It's in the 4th century. It's found in, 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 in a leather volume. Um, um, the book itself has 4th century writings right, on it that right. they used in, in, they in, the, binding. in, the, binding. in so, the binding. So, right. so, so, so we have so a manuscript, manuscript in the 4th century. We think it was written in the 2nd century. But all these memoirs, all the original manuscripts don't say according to Mark. They just start. And so those are the later attributions by different people. That the Gospel of Thomas and others were written later. You don't know that it was named the Gospel of Thomas, the original manuscript. It's a 4th century manuscript that was copied from what you hope is the 2nd century. Okay, so you're just saying that it's... The title was written probably by someone who was copying it, just like they did to Mark and Matthew and Luke. There's nothing in there that, that claims that it was written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah, but no, you don't know if the original manuscript of Thomas said yeah, that. No, we don't have well, it. What we have is the testimony of the early church fathers who say that they were written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right. So, so uh, where do we get, for example, sit down? What, where do That's, we get, for example, the tradition that Mark was uh, the um, writer of Mark? Um, well, you've got you've got Justin Martyr, um, who who lived when, who lived who was born one hundred. So um, he lived in the second century, right? Mark yes, lived right. obviously in the first. That's right. So he yeah, doesn't Martin's. know. He quotes from the Gospels, talks about you know the virgin birth. Um, well, which however, isn't, we're still talking a seventy-year span which, here. He's the virgin, not an eyewitness. Yeah, virgin birth is not in Mark. Um, so. Where does Justin get the idea that Mark actually wrote Mark from? From Polycarp and from who came, got it from John. Um, Irenaeus of Lyons, there's another completely different um, part of the world, and he quoted from the four Gospels um, and ex explicitly attributed the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right, now you're talking late second century. Now, what's going on in this second century? Why, why now would they attribute it to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when it was called Memoirs of the Apostles earlier? Why now? I mean, you uh, guys, you guys are forgetting well, you, that there's all these arguments that are happening in the second century. They're fighting right. against the Ebionites, the Marcionites. The Marcionites have their own canon, right? Uh, which is just a collection of, of uh, Pauline letters and uh, a limited gospel of Luke. Uh, because right. he was supposedly a, a traveling companion of Paul. Um, so these guys are now saying, okay, wait, we have these nameless memoirs of the apostles. We're going to actually stick names on them, right? And so all you have is traditions. The tradition that, that Mark wrote Mark actually comes from Papias. That's the first witness you have is from Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis, right? 
I'm know, assuming I... their silence is just agreement at this point. Unless you guys can prove us wrong. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, following Charlie's the, thinking, it's actually something we've discussed before. He's the earliest, and I'll quote for you. This is from Papias's, uh, I think, Exegesis of the Sayings of the Lord, which was written in five volumes but not preserved, except in what? fragments by Irenaeus and Eusebius. Mark, having okay. become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanying him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Does that sound like the Gospel of Mark that we have? Uh, yes, it does. All out of order and just sayings? That, that's the Gospel we have? No, it, it doesn't. You didn't say that it was all out of order. It was you not, said, however, in exact exactly order that he related he the sayings or deeds of Christ. That's exactly what he said. And, and not only that, well, why don't we take a look at a little bit of a contradiction in Matthew itself? Well, um, hang on, hang on. Let's stay on Papias for a second. Stay on Papias? Right, this is where you guys are getting the, the witness of, of Mark from. It's say, okay. say Papias is correct. And Mark, who is the interpreter of Peter, actually wrote this stuff down, right? All right. Um, if that's the case, why does Matthew borrow a bunch of words from Mark? Why does he base his entire gospel on Mark? Matthew was an eyewitness. Mark wasn't. Right. So why does Matthew I, take large portions of Mark and structure his narrative around it? Why not? Because he was there. Yeah. If I was there with Jesus and some other dude wasn't there, I would write my own sayings. I wouldn't take a bunch of his words, word for word. There's what, 60% of Mark is in Matthew? Word right. for word. Why is he doing that? Why is he basing it on something, on a writing that the guy wasn't even there? Why don't well, you start from scratch what, and write your own? If he knows that what Mark wrote was accurate, why would he need to change it? I guess he, the answer would be, why would you plagiarize? Yeah, what would be the point in even writing it if he's already got Why would you plagiarize? Why don't you write it but yourself? They, they and why, if you're going to plagiarize, why don't you plagiarize from another eyewitness? They weren't worried about plagiarism back then because they weren't publishing stuff and making money off it like we do now. Plagiarism wasn't even considered a problem back then. That's right. <laughs> as long as what you're copying is accurate they didn't care where they got it from and who exactly walked around in that time zone and made sure that the copies were accurate i mean what what evidence do you have that there is an an overseer to all of these copying presses all of these pamphlets well, that were written out and passed around who oversaw the quality right. of copying so we have we have papers well, what you've got now that I, he brings up a very good point um, thought we already addressed that but go ahead well, no, the the way that you tell is you tell by the end result of the manuscripts that are distributed all over the world and in different languages. And You're assuming you that they're all coming from the same manuscript. You, you're you, assuming that no, someone you, makes you, ten copies of a single manuscript, uh, uh, checks them, and then sends them out. You don't know if the first copy was made was a horrible copy, with riddled with errors, and then everyone else made their co uh, copies off of that one. You have no idea. It would have to be the very first one, then. It could be earlier. No. We don't have anything from until the until the fourth century for our manuscripts. Yeah, um, but those fourth century manuscripts are copied, and and as I said, we do have fragments, and those fra fragments do match. Um, and those copies of copies that that don't exist um, still show that they were copied correctly. Look, if you know, and I know you guys have heard this um, example before. It's just as if I had written down a recipe for a cookie recipe, and I I gave several copies to friends of mine, and they gave several copies to friends of theirs. Now they're handwritten and they're guaranteed to have made mistakes. Some of them might have. Layton, are you getting that? No, did we lose them? I think we lost them. Hello? Yo, you two there? Ah, oh, there you are. You guys came Did back. Did you come back? You were given your recipe I analysis. I don't know. Can you hear us now? Yeah, we can hear you. Can, can uh, you hear start your recipe analysis over. Okay. <laughs> if I write down a recipe for 
say, cookies, chocolate chip cookies, and I give copies to 10 friends of mine or three friends, it doesn't matter, and they give copies to their friends, and then it's just handed down generation to generation. If, I, if the original copies are lost, you can reproduce them based on the copies that do exist. Um, so the more well, in order to do that, that's assuming that nobody's adding a little more cinnamon here or taking away. No, it's a not assuming that at all. You, you compare the end manuscripts. Well, you're, you're, what you're the assuming end, is yeah. the original manuscript is copied uh, from the same manuscript, right? So you're from copying. You're sending perfect. out like three or ten copies from the original manuscript. How were people converted? Um, how did new churches form? It's not like there was one central church that made all these copies and sent them out to the world. Uh, these things no, were made no, in houses in the first century. That's so right. So who knows right. if those scribes in the houses that all these later copies are made from uh, were that's what, free that's of errors. That shows how accurate um, it is because even No, there's a terminus there. You can, you can, you can show right. accuracy all the way up to uh, a terminus, and then you have no idea what happened before then. That's right, but that terminus all leads back to Jerusalem. You have it in all different parts of the world. There are at least five. These are um, textual um, regions, the Western text, um, Alexandrian text, um, and, well, there's five of them anyways. So um, in none of these all... early texts of Mark, by the way, do they have verses 9 through 20. The last 12 verses are missing in Mark in all of our earliest manuscripts. That's right, and that's not unexpected because these manuscripts were rolled up into scrolls and... Oh, I'm scroll... sorry. They, they all ended at the exact same place by accident. No, <laughs> they all chopped off the last 12 verses <laughs> just by accident. <laughs> because the original lost the edge of it. Of course. Outside... Well, see, but then again, is... this is the original, and if you have the inerrant, perfect Bible in your hands right now... That's an amazing coincidence that they all cracked off at the same exact same verse. Yeah, did, did God, love that. particularly at this point, mean for those it scriptures to be taken out? It only means that they were early, that... It, you know, it ends perfectly well. That could be the actual ending, but if there were lo a longer ending... Um, that's a forge. It's very reasonable that it did come off because that that's when you have forgery. old manuscripts, the the things that they're missing are the beginnings and the endings. They're not. You, we're not you, usually missing large sections out of the middle of manuscripts sure. because but they were you, scrolls. You don't miss the exact same portion every single time with every. If single it's a exact copy, then you do. If if it's copied from that one that's missing the edge, then it is copied. Then they are well, missing the. edge. Whether it's missing the edge of something or not, you can cut off the back end of a, a sentence or the back end of a few paragraphs of a story and change the entire story. So does that not make it that you have problems in the Bible? Your claim is the Bible is perfect, and yet right no, here... it's not. He's claiming the original manuscript. The original manuscript. Which we don't have. Which we don't have. Of course, if, if it was a miracle enough for God to breathe the original manuscripts... Uh, I don't understand why he wouldn't preserve them. <laughs> just, no less a miracle to preserve them, but I guess he just got lazy after a while. Uh, so, what what we have is this this claim uh, of Papias that you have Mark. Getting back to this, um, do you know why Papias's five volume discourse on on the sayings of the Lord wasn't copied? Uh, you tell me. Eusebius thought he was an idiot. Eusebius okay. calls Papias a man of small mental capacity. And this is this is why this is this is your whole link to Mark is from Eusebius, uh who who uh saves Papias, right? Probably precisely for this reason. But then uh he calls him an idiot because he, he uh has a bunch of other stuff that's really, really stupid. For example, on Judas, this is from Irenaeus. Uh, Judas lived his career in this world as an enormous example of impiety. He was so swollen in the flesh that he could not pass where a wagon could easily pass. This guy was so fat that he couldn't pass where a wagon could. <laughs> uh, on the millennial reign of Christ, as the elders who saw John the disciple of the Lord, right? Papias is supposed to be some sort of disciple of, of John, but here he's talking about John in the third person. As the elders, so he's talking about the elders who saw John. Uh, remembered that they had heard from him how the Lord taught in regard to those times and said, the days will come, he's talking about the millennium, 
The days will come in which vines will grow, each having 10,000 branches, each branch is 10,000 twigs, each true twig 10,000 shoots, and every one of the shoots 10,000 clusters, and on every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes, and every grape when pressed will give 5 and 20 metres of wine. So this is like 25 gallons of wine. And when anyone shall, of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry out, I'm a better cluster, take me, bless the Lord through me. This guy is an idiot. Eusebius was right. So if you believe him that Mark <laughs> was the disciple of Peter, who actually wrote Mark, aren't you obligated to believe this stuff also, that Judas uh, swole up so fat that he couldn't pass where a wagon could, and these grapes are shouting to people as they pass by? This is Papias. This is your this guy. This is actually where your guy is coming from. This is his own words. This is your guy. Remember, also, he, he, he says he's very uh, diligent, right? I will not hesitate to add also to you my interpretations that I formerly learned with care from the presbyters and have carefully stored in memory, giving assurance of his truth. He's giving you, he's talked to eyewitnesses, right? He's a very careful historian, but he passes his crap along. Okay, so he made ad hominem arguments. Am I supposed to agree with ad hominem arguments? This goes to Not his credibility. Ad hominem arguments, he's making up entire things. We're talking about a man that drank so much that he got so big that a cart he couldn't pass through alleyways and grapes were talking to people. This is your this source. This goes to his credibility. Like, it sounds like hyperbole to me. Well, maybe it's hyperbole then that uh, that Mark was actually the uh, guy who wrote Mark. I mean, you can't Except trust that this that guy. That doesn't sound like hyperbole, does it? Uh, well, so if it agrees with what you say, then it's no, it's no, not hyperbole. It, <laughs> no. I understand your. I understand. Accurately sounding description, then we give it the validity. Well, Deserves. Oh, come on. If it agrees so with got, you, so you've you got accept one it. source calling I... this guy an idiot, and from his very words, he proves it, and yet you're clinging to one statement he made that follows the line of your own thinking. Because that's all you and... got. There's no other tradition about Mark, except very, very, very later. But, you know, that that... I'm sure Papias is completely reliable in, in that instance. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine, I've a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine, Jesus is a friend of mine. He loves me when I'm right, he loves me when I'm wrong. He loves me when I waste my time by writing silly songs. He loves me when I'm quiet and I have nothing to say. He'll love me when I'm perfect if I ever get that way.